We want to turn to 2 Corinthians one more time. If you've uh, been with us, you've watched this letter unfold. And if you haven't been with us, we've been working our way through a, a fairly lengthy letter that Paul writes, his second letter, maybe his third letter to the Corinthians. There may be that undesignated, unknown, missing letter, sorrowful letter in between. When the Apostle Paul writes his epistles, all 13 or 14 of them, depending on what you do with Hebrews, when he writes those letters, there's a general pattern that he uses, a brief introduction of some kind, a few verses at the beginning, and then a doctrinal section where he gives you basic Christian truths, solid theology. And having written about that for a while, he shifts into another gear and he gives you practical application of Christian truth to life. What you do as a Christian to live out that theology. And then he wraps it up with a few concluding words. This morning we're going to look at a few concluding words. Just four very short verses. Um, but when we look back over the Corinthian letters, they are weighted, heavily weighted toward practical Christian living particularly addressing problems and challenges of applying the Christian faith to everyday life. There are exceptions to that, like 1 Corinthians 15, the great chapter on the resurrection, but so much of 1 and 2 Corinthians is about how to live the Christian life, even when things aren't going well, or maybe especially when things aren't going well, when life is challenging, when life is hard. <clears throat> when you read what Paul says to us this morning in these closing words, you might be inclined to say, but Paul, you don't understand my setting or my times. And he says, maybe you don't understand my setting and my times. If you look at different study Bibles and resources, they'll date 1 Corinthians somewhere around 55 A.D. and 2 Corinthians 56 A.D., but somewhere in the mid-50s A.D., which would place those letters in probably the second and third years of the reign of Nero. And if you remember anything about Roman history from back in school days, some of you are maybe in school days uh, learning, and you start to think of all those Roman emperors, the, there were a lot of really bad ones, and the worst was generally understood to be Nero. And it's in that time frame on the timeline when things are not going well, and if you went into Corinth and you're joining this particular church to which this letter's written, you'd find that there's a hostile synagogue next door that's upset about what you're doing and disagreeing with your teaching. And you look out the front door of where the church was meeting, and you'd see in every direction Greek pagan temples. You could look up on the uh, Acrocorinth of, of Corinth and see... Uh, the shrines where all the, the immoral things were done in the name of religion. <clears throat> so Paul writes to that kind of context. And he might say, you think you got problems. You think your world is tough. Try the first century in Corinth for these folks. <clears throat> so he takes away our excuses. And he comes, and we're going to look at four verses. <clears throat> By far the most important is verse 11. And the others will go quickly. But verse 11, Paul gives <coughs> a series of imperatives or commands to the church. 
And he says, uh, do this, do this, do this, do this, and we'll see you later. But he gives these short little words, little bursts, to encourage these Corinthians. In first, 2 Corinthians 13, 11, <coughs> he says, finally, brethren, last of all, after all these 13 chapters, wrapping it up, <coughs> brethren, or brothers and sisters, the NIV has it, church members, first of all, rejoice. Joy is something that you're familiar with, you know about. We talk about joy in our culture. We usually think of it as an emotion, something we feel when things are going well. <coughs> if you win an election, you might rejoice. If you lose an election, you might not want to rejoice. If uh, you get a good job or you find out something good from the, the doctor or something comes your way, you want to rejoice. You want to you express how good you feel on the inside. But Paul doesn't just say, share your feelings. He says, choose joy. <coughs> it's the imperative. Rejoice. This is your charge. This is the church. This is what the church does. You choose joy. Over on the other side of the campus here at First Baptist, we have the Joy House, the two-story brick home up there. <clears throat> it's got a knocker on the front door that says joy on it. It's not because it's a joyful place. It's because the Joy family lived there a long time ago. But that name is carried over into uh, First Baptist days, and so most people assume <coughs> it's just named because of what we want it to be like when you go in there. But uh, joy is a choice. Joy is something Christians choose. <coughs> joy can be your choice this morning. You can yield to your uh, negative side and be cynical and critical, negative, and pull a lot of people down with you. Or you can choose to be positive and encouraging uh, to other people and build a lot of people up and build the church up, and that can be you. You can choose that. And Paul says you don't get really a choice about choosing that. Choose it. Choose joy. Rejoice. Thank you. Awesome. Appreciate that. Excuse me. That is very good. I wish you all had some. <clears throat> it's available right after church this morning. Choose joy. That's what you're supposed to do. Even if things aren't like you want them to be, even if your physical body is struggling today, choose joy, rejoice, express it, share it, build the church through it. Rejoice, Paul says. Having said all these 13 chapters, now choose joy, choose that, rejoice in that. Secondly, he says, be made complete. It's a little uh, debate about exactly how to translate that if you look up that verb. <clears throat> this too is a command. It could be make complete or mend or restore. <clears throat> so he may be saying to the Corinthians, <clears throat> be restored. Whatever's wrong at Corinth, the problems they're dealing with, be made whole again. Get the church back together. I think it's 
a little better than that. I think it's a little stronger than that. I think he's speaking to the church in general, but each individual Christian in particular, saying, finish being what you're supposed to be. Get on with your life calling, your mission, uh, press on and be made, literally be made complete. Uh, I think I made my last book purchases for the year. I buy a certain number of books every year. Obviously, it's a growing problem, and, uh, but they're kind of everywhere. But uh, to wrap up book purchases for this year, uh, something I've looked at for a while, I bought John Bunyan's Life Works. Banner Truth's got three volumes set. It will take a year, some year, to read all of that. It's more the kind of thing you just read samplings from and look up topics in. But John Bunyan was an English uh, preacher, repairman turned theologian, a remarkable individual who is best known for writing Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you have read Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you have tried to read Pilgrim's Progress and weren't able to finish that. Some of you tried maybe several times and have come short on Pilgrim's Progress. In its day, it was uh, quite the writing. It is said that in Victorian England, in the late 1800s, in every good Christian home there, and a culture that in that day was much more Christian than England and Britain is today, that the children were raised, every good Christian home uh, had the reading of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and John Fox's Book of Martyrs, and kids were raised on that. That's how they learned to read, and that's how they learned to listen, and that's where they got their core life values. And <clears throat> Bunyan uh, wrote Pilgrim's Progress from prison, mostly, <clears throat> but long before he went into prison, he wrote the other stuff that got him in prison. He could have gotten out of prison at almost any time if he had just signed off on, I'm not going to do that stuff anymore. But he was uncompromising and unyielding in his commitment to truth, but not only truth, but to the proclamation of truth. Uh, and so he wrote all these writings, many things. Uh, one of those, and I did some sample reading in it uh, this week, was Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. It's a personal testimony. It's Bunyan talking about how God took him from darkness to light, uh, from lostness to salvation in Christ, and like uh, many others who had a profound conversion and transformation, he writes with wonder at what God has done. <clears throat> in Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, he says these words, God be merciful to you and grant that you may not be slothful to go in and possess the land. And Bunyan's drawing on Joshua and the, the days of the transition from Moses to Joshua and the entering into the promised land and having failed to go in in Moses' day, now they would go in in Joshua's day and literally possess the Holy Land. That image has carried on down through biblical times and into the, the Christian church. And Bunyan picks up on that and he says, possessing the land for each of us is a little bit different, but possessing the land is living out your Christian faith and being all that God wants you to be. <clears throat> he says, God be merciful to you. God grant that you may not be slothful. Sloth's that old slow motion animal that can't quite get anything done and moves so slowly you can hardly see him moving. We take that, that animal's name and apply it uh, to life and the, the person who just can't quite get it done. 
is slothful, or slothful, some people like to say. He says, don't be slothful. Go in and possess the land. Be what it is that Christ wants you to be. It may not be a writer like he was or a preacher. It may be something else, but whatever God's called you to be, be made complete, Paul says. Bunyan says, don't just drag around. Paul says, be, choose. It's an imperative again. Be made complete. Restore what needs to be restored. Mend the fences, but be made complete. Experience all of it to the glory of God. Everything that God has in mind for you, all that he has in store for you, be made complete. Thirdly, Paul says, be comforted. Be comforted. Now, uh, if you go all the way back to chapter 1, this is neat paragraph that runs nine or ten verses there or so. <clears throat> right in the beginning of the letter, where we usually in English translate uh, the key word that's used over and over and over there as comfort. It's the same word that can be translated as encouragement. And I've encouraged you as we've gone through 2 Corinthians to uh, at least also translate that word each time as encourage. It's the heart of the, the Apostle Paul uh, to encourage others. He just did when he told them to be made complete. But he says, and it's in the passive, be encouraged. Be encouraged. The name most commonly used by Jesus for the Holy Spirit is the noun form of the verb that Paul's using there. So that the Holy Spirit is the helper or the comforter or the encourager. In the upper room, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. That's that word, that he may be with you forever. But the helper, he says a few verses later, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things to bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The helper will do that. The encourager will do that. Two chapters later, Jesus still talking in the same message in the upper room said, but I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. They couldn't imagine that that night. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The encourager will come. That's the same word that we, we put in a, a verb form and, and Paul uses it and he uses it over and over and over and over. I don't know how many times in 2 Corinthians. And I think it's got to be way more than be comforted. It's be encouraged. Uh, be pushed toward a Christian victory. Toward all that the Lord has in store for you. <clears throat> be encouraged. Then he gives us number four. Be like-minded. Or NIV says be of one mind. Isn't that hard to do? Uh, and uh, you know, we, we've heard up to here uh, about diversity in recent days and months and years in our culture about how diverse we are and we got this growing diversity and we got to be excited about diversity and all that. <clears throat> and, and in that kind of context, Paul uh, would say, hey, wait, 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 wait. Have your minds on the same thing. I desire that you think alike. 
I want you to think alike. You don't have to dress alike. You don't have to drive the same thing. You don't have to paint your houses the same color. But I want you, when it comes to the important things of life, I want you to think the same thing. I want you to be on the same page. Have in mind, literally have in mind, the same thing. And I think when Paul says that, he has in mind the whole package of Christian theology. So that you and you and you and you and all of us here this morning, while we might disagree about all kind of things about who ought to win the ball game and who ought to win the election and, and what color something might ought to be, when it comes down to do we believe that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, there's no room for discussion. It's a slam dunk, it's a done deal in Christian theology. Paul says, have that in mind. Keep that central to your thinking. How you think will determine everything else about you. And the overflow of your core values comes the choices you make in life. And how you uh, live out your career and how you build your family and, and what you do in your relationships and how you spend your resources. Paul says, I want you to have in mind the same thing. The glorification of God through Jesus Christ. Salvation through Jesus Christ. Life choices and values that honor Him and fulfill His purposes. You become complete and you are encouraged as you focus on the things that He puts out there for us to focus on. And those become our priorities. <clears throat> it's great to have, you know, we have uh, committees in church uh, so that we get opinions and uh, Baptist churches above all kinds of churches are congregational and <clears throat> we maximize the input of a lot of different people but uh, when it comes to the things that really matter there's not a lot of uh, variation there. Paul says have in mind these same precious things. Not only do we agree about them but we we meditate on those biblical truths and those are the things that are important to us and so they are in our minds it's not just that we would all go look up these things somewhere and agree someday on them it's that day by day we think alike because we think about life like Jesus thinks about life and that's what's important to us and then he comes up with number five coming down the list he says live in peace Peace is a, a feeling also. It's an emotion also. It's something that you can feel, but it's also something that you can choose. It is something that you can work toward. It's something that you can uh, elect to be. Jesus in that upper room, I was reading from John 14 a minute ago. If you went back to John 14 and back to the upper room there in Jerusalem, that same night Jesus would say to you, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. I leave you peace. Choose peace. Choose uh, to focus on peace. This can be you. Three years before Jesus had gone to uh, the upper shore of the Sea of Galilee, to a place where a lot of other uh, important things in his life occurred in his ministry, and he went up on the high ground and he looked out over the people and he gave them the Sermon on the Mount. And he began with the Beatitudes and mixed in with those. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. 
Making peace won't earn you salvation, but he says those people who love the Lord are by nature, by, by their transformed nature, they're peacemakers. They know when to, uh, to step up and resist evil and, and respond to that. But they are by nature peacemakers. And you and I can choose to be peacemakers in our relationships. And Jesus says those who make that choice, those are the sons of God. Or you could say the daughters of God in application. Those are the, the real children of God, those who desire that. And Paul says to the Corinthians, choose peace. You read First and Second Corinthians and you see the, the evidences of a church that did a lot of bickering and squabbling. Worried about this and that, what, which preacher they liked the most and uh, which spiritual gifts were the most important and all kind of petty things where they got off track because they were not thinking the same thing and thinking on big things and they'd lost their perspective. <clears throat> and Paul says to the Corinthians, oh, choose peace. Uh, bring the church together, be strong, choose peace. In a crazy, uh, immoral Corinthian culture, in a hostile Roman empire, <clears throat> that Corinth is a part of. Choose peace. You can do that. You can do that in the 21st century. And he says, and if you do, the God of love and peace will be with you. God will be with you. God will honor that is really what he's saying. You do the right thing, God will honor that. Rejoice in that. Be made complete in that. Be encouraged by that. Think on these things and choose peace. God will be with you. And God will honor your commitment to the truth of chapters 1 through 13. God will choose your commitment to the Christian faith. Verse 12, <clears throat> if you're looking for easy memory verses, these next two are short ones. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now the application of that, I don't know. I'm not sure we need a whole bunch more kissing at First Baptist Church. I've been in the Middle East and... Seeing those guys kissing each other, and you think, just, yeah, that just doesn't work in Georgia. So. But it was a part of the culture. Uh, we, we don't need to begin kissing everybody at church. That can get you in a lot of trouble. But we greet one another, and the point Paul's making is let your church be characterized by hospitality, where people are welcomed and encouraged there and received built up in the Christian faith. That's the heart of verse 12. And he says, and oh, by the way, verse 13, all the saints greet you. Uh, he's talking, I think, on behalf of the Macedonians uh, that surround where he is at the time he writes this. And by especially his team that's traveling with him is all the saints. And saints are not uh, people who um, have ST in front of their name and they've done some incredible things in their life. Saints are Christians. In the New Testament. Believers, true believers. And he says, all the saints up here greet you. Everybody says hello to you. Now, all the Christians up here in the north want to say hello and send their greetings to all you Christians down there in the south. And then he comes <clears throat> to the benediction of the conclusion, the wrapping it all up verse for 2 Corinthians. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And he's through. And he concludes the letter. It's a Trinitarian verse. He's got Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit there. Uh, some people say he got it out of order. 
uh, that he should have had God first and then Jesus and then the Holy Spirit. I'll let anybody that thinks that tell Paul that he got it backwards uh, when he's there. But he identifies all three persons of the Trinity. There's not a Trinity chapter in the Bible where you, you look it up and it describes in great detail like a systematic theology book. Uh, this is what the Trinity is and all that. That would be defined and clarified in the church, but it's all woven into the fabric of the New Testament in verses like this one where speaking as though it is uh, personal and deity, he speaks of Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit all as persons, all as deity, all in unity, all working together. And the Godhead comes to us in the person of Jesus, uh, especially in this redemptive mode. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the one who is crucified and raised for our sin. And his whole ministry on earth is surrounded by this great topic of grace. John Newton, that was the other book I bought at the end of the year, in the works of Newton. Newton wrote Amazing Grace. Bunyan wrote about grace abounding in his life. The chiefest of sinners he described himself as being, but he says grace is abounding. And it's through Christ, Jesus brings us grace. Grace is unmerited favor. And wrapping up this whole letter, he says, wrapping it up, Corinthians, you never, ever, ever forget that you live, you breathe, you survive by grace. And if you go to heaven someday, it will not be because you were good enough. It will be because he was gracious enough. And that grace comes through Jesus Christ. He speaks of the love of God. Uh, the world likes to, to the degree they allow God into their discussion and their thoughts at all. <clears throat> they want to define God as loving and appropriately so, as long as you get all the rest of it there. But Paul says, uh, the God of love be with you. The God who sends Jesus in grace and mercy be with you. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The fellowship is the, the binding together, the koinonia. In seminary, we had small group fellowship groups. They were called K-groups for that word that Paul uses there. And he's saying that the Holy Spirit has the ability to bring a church together in harmony, uh, not so that they have a, a good time, so, but so that they live out and fulfill everything that God has in store for them. It's this... Uh, especially to the Corinthians, above all the churches in the New Testament, I think, they argued about uh, silly things, including works of the Holy Spirit. And he says, let the Holy Spirit create fellowship within your ranks and not divide you. May the Holy Spirit bind you together in your thinking and in your living so that you exalt Him. May that be with you all. May that be who you are, Corinthians. This is what God has in store for you. I've said before, I'll say again, I say often to lots of people, basic Christianity, you got this group that's got this exciting thing going on and this group that's got particular writings over here they're all excited about and all these things. Basic core Christianity is awesome. Without all the veneers and the, the banners and all the, the fireworks and all that, just basic Christianity that in your plight that Bunyan's describing for himself 
In your condition, God would reach out to you and redeem you at no cost to you other than you respond in faith. That is incredible. The world has nothing comparable to offer you. Basic Christianity is matchless. Basic Christianity is priceless. Thursday morning when you get up and you're eating your turkey or whatever you do on Thanksgiving Day, and you're thinking about things to be grateful for, above all else, be grateful for the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That's an expression of the love of God that will bind you in fellowship through the work of the Holy Spirit among his people to some great purpose. And Paul says, get in it, love it, enjoy it, and be made complete in it. Go on to Christian maturity. And he's done with the Corinthians by letter. He would go on to visit them after that. But he's through with his writings. And except for on Wednesday nights, so are we for now. But Paul has written this tremendous letter of encouragement to the Corinthians. And the Holy Spirit has preserved it in Scripture for all of us. That we too might be encouraged in our Christian faith. Let's bow. Father, we're grateful that though we live in a world that sometimes can be incredibly discouraging because of what we see, because of what we experience, because of what people might do to us, because of lost dreams, for whatever reason, this world can be very discouraging. And we're grateful this morning for this very encouraging letter that calls us to look up and look forward and press on and do great things for the cause of Christ. May it be so, Lord. In this Thanksgiving season, we are grateful. We're grateful to other people who have uh, sacrificed for our well-being, but we are way above all grateful to you for our salvation and our life and our abundant life in Christ and our eternal life in heaven that we anticipate. We're grateful that our all in all is centered on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, Send us out this morning rejoicing in that and celebrating that in this Thanksgiving season, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.